Well, thank you all for having me. Uh, it's a real joy to be here with you. Uh, when Josh first mentioned the uh, possibility of this conference, he, uh, he just said the words Phoenix and February to a guy who lives in Washington, D.C., and I was sold. I didn't even need to know what we were doing or talking about. But when I found out that it was uh, uh, an opportunity to talk to pastors uh, particularly, and, uh, and it, it was a, an easy decision to come. So I, I have such respect for uh, men who serve faithfully uh, in the pastoral ministry. I've been a pastor for about eight years now. I was telling Josh in the car ride over, it feels like 80 at times. At other times it feels like 800. Uh, and so the idea that God might use me today to be useful uh, to you all um, is, uh, is humbling and exciting to me. It's also humbling for me uh, to be here uh, speaking with Dr. Grudem, uh, who, uh, from whom I've learned so much through his books and resources. I don't know if you got a chance to look at the little website that they put together for the, the conference, but it had the, the schedule and the registration information and then it had the speaker's biographies. And there was a, a picture of Dr. Grudem and his smiling face and a very, very brief summary of, of his accomplishments and his credentials, his uh, 20-plus books, including the Systematic Theology, the uh, editor of the ESV Study Bible, professor at... Phoenix Seminary, and, and I don't remember the exact wording next to my picture, but I think it said something like, uh, Mike McKinley has a blog, and all of his teeth, and he's read the ESV study Bible, most of it, so, so right off the bat, I just want to acknowledge what you're all thinking, which is that, that I, I understand who the all-star slugger is and who the sort of scrappy utility second baseman is on this lineup, so I'm not going to try and, and over-swing here. Um, but I do seriously have the privilege of bringing three messages to you today, and I hope, my hope is that they'll have two effects. One is just uh, to cause you to delight afresh in our God. I mean, what an amazing topic, conversion. I mean, when you think about what it is that God's done for us through his Son in, in bringing us out of darkness into his marvelous light, I hope that, that you walk out of here well-equipped and, and taught, but, but rejoicing afresh in the fact that God set his love on you to change you uh, in that way. Uh, and then also, just practically, that, that we might think through together some of the implications that uh, a, an accurate uh, and a, a robust and full doctrine of conversion will have on your pastoral ministry. So at the beginning, let me just take a minute and just kind of define the terms. I, I trust Dr. Gruden will do this in more detail uh, uh, in his talk. But when we're talking about conversion, in this first talk, we're going to talk about the way con- our, a doctrine of conversion Uh, impacts our preaching. Uh, And so when we're talking about conversion, we're talking about the response that we have to the call of the gospel. So the the gospel word comes, and and with it, it brings a call. It comes with news that Christ has died and and been raised again for us, that he's ascended for us, and then it calls us to do something in response to, in the words of Jesus in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the good news. So Peter told the crowds at Pentecost, he told them about the good news that Jesus had died, that he had rose uh, for them and, and for their sin. And then in Acts 2, uh, Peter commands the crowds, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. When someone responds to the gospel call in repentance and faith, that's conversion. That means they have been converted. Uh, they have turned from their sins in genuine repentance, 
sorrow for their rebellion against God, a recognition of the moral evil of the way that they've lived, a sincere intention to obey God instead, and then they have begun to believe in Jesus, to trust Him uh, and His work on their behalf. And so Paul, in Acts 20, verse 21, says that this was the intended result of the message he preached. When Paul preached, his goal was to see this repentance and faith established in his hearers. In Acts 20, 21, he says that he was testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all through Scripture, we see examples of this change, this conversion in people's lives. Zacchaeus, for example, was a a cheat and a thief. When Jesus came to him, his life was changed. In Luke 19, we, we read that this tax collector received him, that is Jesus, joyfully. He, he, he had joy at, at seeing Jesus, being with Jesus. He resolved to turn from his wickedness. He made restitution for his crimes. That's what conversion looks like. Uh, Saul the Pharisee, a zealous per- persecutor of the church. He, he meets the risen and ascended Christ on the road to Damascus. And his conversion is immediate and dramatic and obvious. He keeps going the same physical road to Damascus, but he's on a completely different spiritual road at this point. He saw his sin. He now trusted Christ. And so Paul rejoiced that the uh, church at Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, he rejoiced that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So before we dig into some specifics about how this reality, this idea of conversion, of repentance and faith in response to the good news shapes our preaching, let me just, let me just outline four kind of basic and foundational things about conversion that I'm going to assume through all of my three talks today and that hopefully we'll get the flesh out a little bit together. But I want, to, I want to sort of lay all my cards on the table so you know where I'm coming from as we think about uh, conversion. And then with the rest of the time that we have, I'll try and apply some of these things specifically to the idea of preaching. Uh, the first kind of foundational uh, idea is that no one is born a Christian. Uh, no one is born a Christian. A, a few weeks ago I was teaching a, a seminar on the church at a, a mainline seminary in northern India. And so during the tea breaks, they'd have sort of extended tea breaks, and I would wind up sort of milling around and making small talk with the the students there at the school. And to be honest with you, small talk is not my forte. Uh, I've only got really one of two moves. I'm I'm really good at talking about baseball or football. So if you want to talk about the Yankees, Yankees, or even the Phillies, I'm your guy. If you want to talk football, I mean, if you want to criticize Andy Reid's play calling... If you want to criticize his ridiculous use of timeouts in the first quarter on first down to save a five-yard penalty, I mean, if you want to talk about Andy Reid's baffling inability to manage the clock, even though he's been playing football and coaching his entire life, and if you want to mourn with me the 1991 season opener where Randall Cunningham had his ACL snapped and thus taking away from me my only real chance during my lifetime of seeing the Eagles win the Super Bowl, I mean, we can talk about those things. But what, I, what I've learned in terms of small talk, when I travel internationally, those things are not really hot-button issues like in northern India. And so I'm really left with nothing to talk about over tea. And so I've got my one other move, which is, so how did you become a Christian? 
And that seems like an easy enough question, right? Pretty non-threatening. After all, these are students at a seminary. But uh, honestly, the, the answer I got from almost every student was a little unsettling. I was born into a Christian family. And they weren't saying that like, that's how I heard the gospel and came to repent of my sins and trust in Christ. It was more like, well, like, we're not Hindus, we're not Muslims, we're Christians. And even when I'd press on them a little bit, to ask them, no, okay, but, but specifically, when did you come to realize that you were a sinner? When did you come to call on Christ as your Savior? Many of them struggled to have an answer. Now, there might be a language barrier there, there might be a cultural barrier there, but it was still, it was a bit disconcerting. Our faith is not built on one's family identity. It's not a, a cultural religion. So you, you can be born a Hindu. You can be born a Muslim. You don't have to do anything to enter into those faiths particularly. You can be born and you just keep going. You just have to not consciously walk away from it. But the Bible teaches that no one is born right with God. The only thing we're, we, we naturally have is sin. We are all by nature children of wrath, according to Paul in Ephesians 2. We are born into the guilt of the first Adam, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about the fact that we're all blinded by, uh, so that we can't see the beauty of Christ in the gospel. And so, and so there has to be some kind of change. There has to be some sort of radical departure from the normal course of things. We have to be brought into God's family. We have to be included in the new Adam. We have to have the veil removed from our eyes so that we can see. And so no one can be saved without that change, without that conversion. And no one is born a Christian. Uh, Second kind of foundational idea. Conversion involves our activity. We participate in our conversion. And as, as good Protestants, that might make us a little nervous, right? When we start talking about ways that we participate in our own salvation, uh, that should make you feel a little bit nervous. But it's true that conversion involves our work and our activity. In that sense, it's different than our, our doctrine of regeneration. So when the Bible talks about regeneration, about the giving of the new birth, it, it speaks in terms of God's activity on us and our passivity, Right, so in John chapter 3, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus asks the obvious question. Like, that's impossible, right? And, and Jesus doesn't come to him and say, no, no, you can actually do it if you, if you believe in yourself. No, Jesus says, kind of uh, uncomfortingly, yeah. Yeah, that's, the Spirit blows what, as it will. He's like the wind. He, he goes where he wants. In conversion, however, it's unlike regeneration. In conversion, we're called to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2. We are told to repent. And so we must actually repent. We are commanded to put our trust in Christ. And so we must actually exercise that trust. And so in our doctrine of conversion, there's a sort of interplay between the one-sided work of God and then the response that's demanded of us. Uh, to paraphrase Herman Bovink, uh, God's salvation is unilateral. He designs it. He defines it. It proceeds from Him. God saves us. But God destines it to become bilateral, to be accepted and to be kept and received in repentance and faith uh, by human beings. And so no one can respond to the Gospel with repentance and faith. There is no conversion unless... 
unless God the Holy Spirit gives new spiritual life, unless there is that regeneration. So think about Lydia in Acts 16.14. It says that the Lord opened her heart. That's, That's regeneration language. God gave her new eyes. It says there that God opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. God opened her heart so that she could respond, so that she could repent and believe. It's important to acknowledge that when we talk about conversion, we are talking about something that does involve a human response. We find that when we work out our faith with fear and trembling, it's been God working all along, uh, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, as Paul says in Philippians 2. So a second observation, we're going to talk about conversion as something that we participate in, but don't get too nervous about that. Third observation, conversion is a one-time event, but repentance and faith continue on throughout life. So our conversion, when we come to Christ, it's not, a, it's not an anomaly. It's not like we start our Christian lives with this response of repentance and faith and then move on to other kinds of responses to God's grace. Now, the scripture tells us that the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, John the Baptist, in the way that he described repentance, saw it as something that continued on throughout life. He told his hearers, you remember, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, He, John, uh, assumed that this one-time act of turning from your sins would would issue in in a bunch of fruit, a bunch of uh, uh, turnings throughout your life. Thus, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the, the church door at Wittenberg, uh, the first one was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. This is going to be really important as we think about pastoral ministry together today. When we think about preaching, when we think about the way uh, we shape the discipleship of our church, we are not moving on to some more advanced version of Christianity. Uh, we are not trying to teach our people some higher truth about the Christian life. A pastoral ministry, in many ways, is simply the teasing out for people of the implications of their conversion. It's showing them what it means to, to have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, and now to repent of your sins and trust in Christ now, not for a not for new life spiritually, but as a as a as an uh, issuing from your conversion. And so, husbands that aren't treating their wives well, they need to repent. They need to, they need to believe the promises of God for their marriage. So, repentance, faith, conversion is something that that's going to bear fruit all the way uh, through someone's life. And then the fourth point: conversion always gives evidence in the life of the believer. So, this is a crucial issue. Uh, And I'm not going to deal with it full scale here, but just to point out that the assumption everywhere in the New Testament is that there is a a radical transformation from darkness into light, from blindness to sight, from life to death. This conversion is going to have an effect on the way you live. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So some say that it's inappropriate, that it's faithless, to look at our own lives for any kind of evidence that we've been genuinely converted. But the words that Paul uses there have to have some kind of meaning. He doesn't say examine the promises of God to see whether you're in the faith. He does say examine yourself. 
Paul assumes that there's something in our lives that will give us either assurance or doubts about whether we are genuinely converted. So that doesn't mean it's always clear-cut or easy to see, but, but we have to have a category for the idea that conversion will give evidence in the life of someone who is a true believer. So those are kind of my four foundational things. Those are my cards on the table. This is how I understand uh, conversion. And so let's now turn specifically to the question of how our preaching should be shaped uh, by our doctrine of conversion. And I just want to suggest two things uh, with the time that we have. First, our doctrine of conversion should give us confidence to preach God's Word. Our doctrine of conversion should give us confidence to preach God's Word. Because God uses means to convert people. And, and how does God give new life? How, how does He bring people from spiritual darkness to light? How does He lead people to repentance and faith? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, if you have your Bible, flip over there. Romans chapter 10, there in verse 13. Paul begins with a statement about the person who turns to God. The person who is converted. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that raises a question. Paul asks the question in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? You can see why it's a good question. You really can't call on someone unless you trust them, unless you believe in them. And so then Paul asks there, continuing on in verse 14, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Well, that's another good point. That's the right question. You really can't trust in someone if you don't know anything about them. And then again in verse 14, Paul continues, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? So follow Paul's train of thought here. You can't call on the Lord unless you believe in Him. You can't believe in Him unless you've heard about Him. And you can't hear about Him unless someone comes to preach the good news to you. So there in verse 17, he concludes, Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the Word of Christ. So friends, what will God use to convert the people who are listening to your Sunday morning sermon? The Word of Christ. His Word. You see, that's all through the Bible. This is what God uses to call and to create His people. This is what God does. He uses His Word. This should give us, I think, fresh confidence to preach God's Word faithfully. I think about it. Our God is a God who creates by the power of His Word. Our God took on human flesh, the incarnate Word of God. Our God gives faith through hearing His Word. It should give us uh, fresh confidence to, to center our pastoral ministry around the preaching of God's Word. And it should, it should make us uh, bold to preach the message of Christ, the Gospel of Christ, from every page of Scripture. Right In Luke 24, Jesus says, uh, that, or we, Luke tells us that Jesus explained to His disciples that, that all the law, all the, the writings, all the psalms, all the prophets, it all spoke about Him. And so as we preach to our people week in and week out, we, we teach God's Word, His powerful Word, His creating Word. 
in confidence that as we point people to Christ from the pages of Scripture, God will be pleased to, to convert some. The strongest pulpit ministries have come from men who had the most confidence in the power of God's Word. Who had the most confidence that God would use His unadorned Word to convert His hearers. Everybody from Whitfield to Wesley, from Spurgeon to Lloyd-Jones, they all had this confidence in common. And if you've been preaching for any amount of time, you probably have experienced this, right? Is it, is it your best sermon that God uses most frequently to bring people to Christ? That's not my experience. In my experience, when I leave home and I'm heading to the church gathering and I think, okay, this is a hot mess of a sermon, right? I, I, I'm going to need you to preach this one up for me, Holy Spirit. Right? When I feel that way about my sermon, and you know, I can say factually, that's true. Yeah, this outline is a mess. I'm not even sure I understand these three verses in the middle, what they're talking about, right? But, but I know those are actually the sermons that God uses, right? But when I think, oh yeah, this sermon is a gem. Get ready, Guilford Baptist Church, because I'm going to drop something on you today, right? When I feel that way in my heart, those are the ones that people afterwards are like, well, you know, thank you, Pastor. That was something, you know? I mean, I remember preaching a sermon once in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. And I don't remember the text, but I remember thinking, you know, as I was preaching, just being like, wow, this is not going well. Like, this is just flat. I feel like I'm saying the same thing I said last week, right? This is, this is boring. Like, I'm starting to fall asleep a little bit in this one, right? And maybe you're a better preacher than I am, so you never have those, but, but every once in a while I throw in a dud, and, and I felt that way. Afterwards, this woman comes up to me. And she's from South America. She spoke with a really heavy accent. But, but she came up and she said, that thing that you said about following Jesus, I, I want to do that. Can you, can you explain more? I, I want to know what that means. I, I want to do that. And I, I'm not proud of this, but I literally said to her, what? I was stunned. I always asked her, like, why? Like, I, I know, and Jesus is great. I understand that. But like, after that sermon, like, what, what could you possibly have heard that made you want to follow Jesus in that sermon? Right, but that's the power of God's Word. You can have total confidence that, that when it is applied by the Holy Spirit, when we are faithful to, to teach it, it has the power to convert your hearers. And for what it's worth, I think this is why it's preferable to teach passages of Scripture rather than topics. There's so much power in the Word of God. It really doesn't need any help. It doesn't need me to sort of chop it up, reorganize it, and, and repackage it for the church. Uh, it, it can do its saving work uh, quite apart from my uh, reinvention of it. And before we move on, and we'll touch on this more later, but I think also our doctrine of conversion should lead us to make prayer a, a very important part of our sermon preparation. Because we do understand that, that the Word of God has the power to convert its hearers when applied uh, by the Holy Spirit, has the power to, to, to give new life and to see repentance and faith established. And, and so if we understand that, that's going to drive us to prayer. That's going to make us plead with God as we are preparing our sermons. That He would be pleased to, to use our preaching. That He would give us clarity. That He would help us to have the right words and that the Holy Spirit would attend the preaching of the Word. 
See, if people can't convert themselves, then we need to pray. We need to pray that we would preach faithfully and clearly. Pray that God would be pleased to use us as means of bringing men and women to faith in Christ. Because if God doesn't work, there will be no conversion. So that's kind of my first umbrella point. Uh, it, it should give us, our doctrine of conversion should give us fresh confidence to preach God's word because that's what he's going to use. Uh, secondly, our doctrine of conversion should shape the way we apply scripture to our hearers, to our audience. See, as I, as I think about it, just kind of a quick taxonomy, I, I, I think there's maybe four different kinds of people listening to me preach, listening to you preach every Sunday. Uh, there are self-consciously unconverted people. Right? These are people who know that they have not repented of their sins and they have not trusted in Christ. And so as you seek to apply any given text of Scripture to your hearers, you need to take into account that there are people there, most likely, who fall into this category. Uh, these people need to be called to respond to the Gospel. So if you're preaching from 1 Samuel about God's command to destroy the Amalekites, you need to tell your hearers that you too have offended a holy God. Uh, You are no less guilty before God than these people were. You deserve the same fate, but God has made a way. Explain Christ. Call them to repent and believe. If you're preaching about Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, you need to press home on your listeners the response that's required of them to repent, to turn from your love of the world and to, to trust in Christ or else you will miss the kingdom of heaven. If you're preaching from Galatians, you need to tell your hearers they need to turn from their wicked self-confidence and self-reliance and self-worship to put their trust in Christ for their salvation alone. Now, that might sound kind of obvious, but, but my fear is that many of us abbreviate or assume the gospel when we're preaching. So we, we talk about Jesus in a positive way. And we, we might even make a compelling case for the existence of God or for the reliability of the Scriptures. And that, that's great. But that's not the fundamental thing that unconverted people need to hear. They need to hear the truth of the Gospel, that they are sinners, that God is holy, that He will judge them, but that in love, He sent His Son that Jesus came and died and rose and ascended for us. And now there's a call on their life that that you, yes, you, sinner, must loosen your grip on your self-love and your self-worship and you must turn wholeheartedly in trust to Christ. See, unconverted people do not need moralism. They don't need marriage advice. Or, or five steps to controlling their anger. They, they don't need to be made better. They need to be made good. Right? There was once a quarterback for the Washington Redskins. I told you, I've only got baseball and football illustrations, pretty much. There was a quarterback for the Washington Redskins named John Beck. Somehow he managed to start seven professional football games without ever winning one. But more than one team gave him a chance to be a starter. And so finally, after his, his seventh loss, a, uh, they were interviewing him after the game, and he said, you know, just need to keep working. Just need to execute the game plan. Just need to get better. 
And one of the local radio hosts the next day played this clip and said, John Beck, no. You don't need to get better. You need to get good. Right? You're not good enough. That's the problem. I fear that a lot of our preaching is aimed at making people better. When in reality, they need to get good. We're just making them more functional, more competent sons of hell. We're kind of making their path to the, to the grave a little more peaceful by helping them manage their lives a little better. But the only way they can become good is through the finished work of Christ on their behalf. By repentance and faith. And so we need to labor when we preach to be really clear about our terms. We cannot let our hearers define the terms. I think words like Christian and, and sin and faith are good words to use. But I would not assume that the people listening to you understand what they mean. I don't even speak to people in terms of... I, I will directly address people who don't know Christ in a sermon. But I won't say, if you're a non-Christian here... First of all, no one likes being called a non-something, right? But, but I don't assume that everyone who falls into that category is, knows that they do. I, I don't want to let my hearers define the terms. I want to be abundantly clear when I use those words what I mean. Here's what I mean when I say Christian. Here's what I mean when I say sin. Here's what real repentance is. Here's genuine faith. We need to be clear and unapologetic. We are ambassadors from God. And so we're not entering into a negotiation or a business deal. Right? We are messengers bringing the, the, the terms of peace from an overwhelmingly powerful sovereign. And so with love and compassion... We need to present the urgent, comprehensive, and gracious demands of our King. Total surrender of self-rule and self-love. There's a second kind of person in the audience, though, that we need to be aware of when we preach. And that is people who think they are converted, but in reality they aren't. We have to apply Scripture to them as well. I think in many ways these are the toughest people to preach to. Because they have had enough of it to think they've got the real thing. Right, they, they're used to being called a Christian. They're kind of inoculated to the gospel. And so when you talk to people, when you, when you tell them that, that if you're not a Christian, you need to repent and believe, they never realize you're talking to them. And so again, we need to be really clear in our preaching what it means to be a Christian. We need to avoid making connections for people that, that becoming a Christian is simply a matter of walking an aisle or signing a card or praying a prayer. The gospel demands a response, repentance and faith. And it can be that walking an aisle or praying a prayer or, or, or signing a card, that may be a, a, an indication of true repentance and faith. But, but those things can be done by, by anyone, quite apart from whether they're genuinely converted. And so we just need to be careful. We need to encourage people to have assurance uh, based not on some external activity, but based on their repentance and trust in Christ. We need to teach our people to examine themselves. We need to make that a normal part of church life. The idea that just saying you're a Christian uh, is a, a statement that, that, that is worthy of examination. So we don't want people sort of falling into morbid introspection. But with sort of healthy gospel lenses, we want people to, to make it their practice, to make their calling and election sure. And so this might mean lovingly calling attention to the lack of fruit in their lives. If you're preaching, as I was last week, through 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 11 to 36, the story of Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. 
Right, there's in verse, in verse 12, there's that sort of haunting phrase. That the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Right? When you're preaching through that text, you've got to stop and say to people, look, Eli, his sons, they knew a lot about God. Right? They were priests. They were in the temple. Their dad was the religious, one of the religious leaders of all of Israel. These guys could have passed any theology exam you wanted to give them. But they didn't know God. They, they knew intellectually that God was holy. But it didn't affect the way they lived. They, they didn't fear to steal the Lord's sacrifices. They didn't fear to defile women in the, 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 meeting, or the entrance to the tent. And so, friend, how about you? Are you trusting in the fact that you know a lot about God? Maybe you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you've been attending this church since you were born. Maybe you could pass any kind of theology exam. But do you actually know God? And then take time to flesh out for them what that means, what might be indications in their lives that they, that they only have a head knowledge of God, that they don't actually know Him. What it looks like to truly know God. Call those people to repentance and faith. There's a third kind of person uh, in our churches, and those who are genuinely converted, but don't think they are. Uh, this is the kind of person who fears uh, that, that they're not really saved. And we won't spend a long time on this, but I think it's useful as a pastor to think about uh, the struggle that these people are having understanding their own conversion. I have a couple of these saints in my church, and their sin just plagues them. I mean, I wish I had a conscience half as tender as theirs. Uh, they just feel their weakness, their failure. Their sin grieves them, and honestly, in a really godly way. You know, so they've prayed to receive Christ like a thousand times, and they're just nervous that it hasn't stuck. Right? These people need to understand the doctrine of conversion more fully. They need us in our preaching to explain it to them. We need to make it clear in our preaching that, yes, repentance and faith, that conversion brings fruit in our lives, that we need to turn from sin, but this is not heaven. This is not the finished product. To say that you're genuinely converted is not to say that there's no struggle with doubt or, or indwelling sin. These people need to understand the sufficiency of Jesus' finished work on the cross. How He bore their sins. How He rose from the dead. <coughs> Excuse me. How He came to seek and save the lost. How He is a willing Savior. They need their pastor to show them the compassion of Christ. Right? That a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. That any who come to Jesus he won't cast out. That sometimes their very concern about their spiritual state is an indication that they have spiritual life. But it's possible because there aren't lots of people like this in our church, and because they're quiet, they tend to be tender. It's easy to just ignore them or to sort of railroad them and, and actually uh, be unhelpful to them as we preach to other people with maybe stronger language and press home the demands of Christ uh, to others. And then fourth and finally, there, there are people who are converted and who know they are. So you've got self-consciously unconverted people. You have people who think they're converted, but they're not. You have people who think they're not converted, but they are. And then probably most of our churches are made up of people who 
who are converted and who, who know that they are. And you might think that the doctrine of conversion has very little to say to them since they've already been converted. But in fact, it's exactly what they need to understand. We'll flesh this out more in our uh, time this afternoon thinking about the way conversion plays out in the life of the church. But just think about how you motivate your people to obedience. You can tell them what to do. There's certainly benefit to that. Our people need to understand God's commands. But they probably aren't struggling to obey sort of most fundamentally because they don't know what's right and what's wrong. Right? When, when people come to me for pastoral counsel because they're struggling with sin, it's usually not, hold on, is this a sin or not? Right? They, they know what to do. Uh, they know they're not supposed to lie, that they're not supposed to commit adultery, they're not supposed to be anxious or gossip. They know they're supposed to love, to forgive, to pray. What they need, they need to be shown is that because they're converted, because they belong to Christ, because they are in Him, they're new creations. That that's actually who they are. And now obedience is consistent with their heavenly identity. That love and forgiveness and hatred for sin, that, that is who they are. They have the Spirit of God empowering them. They have the plan and the promises of God that He will, he will complete the good work that He's begun in them. That he, His will for their life is their sanctification. They are citizens of heaven, children of their heavenly Father. And so when Scripture calls them to obey, it's not calling them to something foreign or alien to them. It's simply calling them to be who they really are. Right, this is the pattern that Paul fall, follows in many of his letters. Right, so think about the book of Romans, for example. You get 11 chapters of theology. Right, you get 11 chapters of indicatives. Uh, here's the gospel. Here's the truth. Uh, here's the sort of underlying theology. And then in chapter 12, uh, Paul makes a transition. He says, I appeal to you in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then Paul, for the next however many chapters, is going to be walking through, fleshing out for those believers what it means that they are converted. What it means that all those things that he said in the first 11 chapters are true. You see it even more clearly, I think, in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, you have six chapters, right? The first three, again, just amazing gospel theology. You get this rich doctrine of what God has done for us in Christ. And then in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes a transition. He says, I, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, on and on. Uh, Paul's then in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 going to flesh out what it means to, to be a, a husband to a wife when you have this kind of Savior. He's going to flesh out what it means to live together in love in a church when you have this kind of Savior, the one that he's been talking about in the first three chapters. The same pattern in, in Colossians. The Christians in our church, they need to understand what their conversion, what their salvation means for their lives in Christ. We need to apply our sermons to our hearers with that in mind. 
You notice all four kinds of people. The self-consciously unconverted, the guy that thinks he's converted but isn't, the guy who thinks he isn't but is, and those who are genuinely converted and know it. Do you notice that all of them need the gospel? None of them need more moralism. They need to understand their conversion and its implications more clearly. Well, I think that's a good place for us to, to pause and to stop.